Hello and welcome back to yet another edition of this podcast we call Kent and the Steering Team. As always, you are joined by myself, Phil, my good friends Bianca and Drew. Unfortunately, there is no Kent this week. He's uh, he's assumed that um, if there's a barbecues galore and the Bond movie has the character pussy galore, maybe that's the same thing. It's not. Anyway, on with the show. Um, team, how are we? <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> is, is Kent out of barbecues galore looking for a woman? Well, he... He, he he stopped by Barbecue's Glow. Now he's not at Barbecue's Glow, and they don't. He was looking for this other one, and they yeah. Wow. I thought he was at a pet shop what. that just sells cats. Yes, that's what that's what they sell. Um, yeah, who knows what he's after? But um, mistaken, he is. It seems like. Uh, but um, of course, that is in reference this week because. We've decided to start what is a multi-week series in which we review the Bond films. Um, We will get to that a little bit later, though, because we're going to start instead with um, a psych test, one that uh, the audience loves listening to, and Drew and I are both terrified but also enjoy being a part of. Bianca, over to you. Well, boys, I'm very much excited for this. Um, I... I, so in my excitement, we plan our segments and we do all these things for it. And I got very excited and I think I overplanned. So <laughs> I'm, I'm now looking at all of the answers and I'm like, fuck, this is a really long psych test. Um, I really think I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I'm very torn at which one to give you. Because we have a tradition on this show of when we do psych tests, there's one question that has been in every single psych test. I have one one of the psych tests with that question and then the other one does not have that question. And I'm wondering, let's do something different this time, guys. That sounds like an excellent idea. Just a little bit different from what we're used to. Um, For those of people who don't know, this is a segment that we've done last time last year. I think we did it last year. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I find various psychological tests online just because I just find them interesting and I watch people on YouTube conduct them. Uh, And they're just just random questions that you ask people and, you know, apparently the answers are supposed to tell us something about your personality and your mindset and your goals and aspirations. So for all of us at home, uh, pause it right here if you don't have a pen and paper. If you do have a pen and paper, that's fine. Go ahead. But... Pause, go find yourself a pen and paper, and uh, come back and join us for the psych test. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> Sorry. I really yes. have to. Um, all right, guys. Yep. This is called the mm-hmm. Cube Personality Test. Um, so studies in psychology suggest that no two people in the world are the exact same. Uh, the personality, Your personality is supposed to be, you know, something completely unique to you. And over the years, a whole lot range of personality tests have been created. This one is called the Cube Personality Test, and it starts a little something like this. Mm-hmm. Boys, I would like you to think of an open field. How big is the open field? What is this field filled with? And what are the surrounding like, surroundings like? 
And if you could answer those three questions. True. Do we need oh. to write these down? So write them down and we'll go through them afterwards because there's quite a few. Okay. Okay. So run us through the three questions again. Think of an open field. Yeah. And I want you to think of the field and just know how big is this field? What is this field? What is it filled with? And what are the surroundings like? Are we good? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Now think of a cube in the film field. I want you to think of a cube, but it's sitting in the field. How mm -hmm. big is the cube? What is the cube made of and what is its surface like? Is it rough? Is it smooth? Is it crinkly? What color is the cube? Where is it in the field? And is the cube like on the ground or is it floating or is it, you know, somewhere? Um, and is it transparent? And if so, can you see inside? I'm doing this as well, by the way, just so we all, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Mm -hmm. yep. Now, I would also like you to think of a ladder. How long is this ladder and where is it located in your field? What is the distance between the ladder and the cube? Yep. Okay. Now, think of a horse. What color is the horse? What is the horse doing? Where is the horse in relation to the cube? Now, so what what color is the horse? Yeah, what color is the horse? What was the next one? So color. What color is the horse? Where yep. is the horse? What is the horse doing, sorry? And where is the horse in relation to your cube? How do you spell the thing that the horses, the hair on the horse's back, a mane? Mane. M a n e. M a n e. I mean, no one's going to be checking your spelling. <laughs> Just checking. Just for those of you at home, I'm not using spell check. It's fine. Um. Now I want you to think of flowers. Where are the flowers in your field, and how many are there? What is the weather in your field? Is it, you know, raining? Is it cloudy? Is it sunny? Is it stormy? What?
Mm-hmm. And the very last question, guys. Think of a storm. What is the distance between the storm and the cube? And is the storm big? And is it just passing through or is it there? Are we all good? Yep. Now, I just want you guys mm-hmm. to like close your eyes and think of it again and just make sure that you you can clearly see all these things. You can see the open field. You can see the red. Ooh, mine's a red cube. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can see. <laughs> you, I'm just reading my answers as I'm saying. The ladder, the horse, the flowers, what the weather is like before the storm and then what the storm is like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, now let's all go through the answers together. And again, I'm doing this with you guys, so I just realized I have to cut back and forth between my answers and the page, but whatever. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so, the field. The yes. field represents your mind. It is the... Okay, so actually I should probably ask you your answers first. What is your mm-hmm. answer to the first question, which is how big is the field? Philip, uh, I, I, I've put open field as in I don't know what the exact sizing is in the sense that it goes, it goes halfway to the horizon. Um, so like, if if you picture we're on rolling hills and we're on the top of one of the hills, and so any point from us in relation to our field, the fence for the field is kind of like in the gullies between the t- the rolling hills um, and that goes about as far as halfway to the horizon and the rest of the way is then other fields of other colors and stuff like that but not the field that we're in um, and then there are trees somewhere along that are blocking some of the horizon but basically that field is yeah about halfway to the horizon and we're on the top of a sort of hill which is the center of it and what is it Andrew? A uh, very big open field, um, just like like a big sort of flat plain of lush lush green grass, and a surrounding of snow capped mountains. Okay, so mine is a sort of like a mix of both of yours. Mine is this massive field that's kind of in the middle of a valley, mm-hmm. but you can't see the end of it. Like you can just see there's a valley on every which way around you and there's rolling hills everywhere and there's like a kind of a forest to one side of it like you kind of step out of the forest but that's kind of my thing so um the field represents your mind um its size is the representation of the your knowledge of this world and how vast your personality is um what was the condition of your field like the grass and all that my, mine wasn't grass or anything. It was actually, um, it was it was wheat or barley or something. So it was about about like hip not height, corn. <laughs> not corn. No, not creepy. It was about hip height. Um, and the thing that was kind of most um, interesting to me about it was the sound. I could picture the wind 
whistling and the sound of like the the, the wheat or the barley kind of like I don't know like bouncing I don't know what they when it, you know when it touches each other and it just kind of you hear it like yeah. that sound of like that whistling this, yes yep. like it, that's what I could picture yeah mine was just like lush green like you know when you just fall into the grass and you don't feel the ground you just feel the cushion of grass now I'd argue mine is actually kind of um it it, it's sort of wintry, so it's caught sort of crisp and dry. Um, yeah. And it's just, like, fields of it. But there's, like, parts that are really green and lush, but it's just because it's the middle of winter, it's very crisp and dry. But, so if you're dry and dead like me, apparently when people <coughs> first meet you, they think you're a bit pessimistic, which kind of relates to me. If it's grassy and healthy, Drew's case... You are feeling very optimistic. People think of you as very optimistic. Now, Phil, I'm not quite sure if wheat counts as grassy or dry. I think it counts more as dry because wheat is very dry. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. you want it to be that sort of dry thing. So I'd say that people also think you're a bit pessimistic. But there's also a third <laughs> option of well A bit dry. <laughs> and I, I, I argue that if all of your grain is kind of the same size, then it's also well-trimmed, which mm-hmm. means people think you're very analytical, which you kind of are. So I don't know. That one's a bit hard because every... I'm, I'm happy to have either both pessimistic or analytical because I... I'd put you in between the two. Yeah, so would I. I. Because <laughs> the way I think of it is that your, your, your wheat field is all very, like one level it's correct yeah oh yeah 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 it is it's it is it is as if the ground is hip height yeah that's how i would assume that you'd have it because that would yeah you're very analytical um now onto the cube so Mm -hmm. how big is your cube phil my cube is about the size of a soccer ball um it is like do you want me to go through all the steps to go with my cube yeah, yeah, go through. Okay, so um, it's sitting, in fact, on a little clearing in the very centre, on the very top of the hill, um, on a little white table with, like, a little circular kind of white table. Um, I think there's actually one of them in the house. Um, I, and it's sitting on that. It is about the size of a soccer ball. It is black. Um, picture, you know, like a Rubik's Cube, how a Rubik's Cube has the black kind of um, corners to it. So each each cube on a Rubik's Cube has like the black, black edges black and everything. Yeah. It's kind of that. It's that feel and everything because it, it is plastic. It's plastic exactly like that. And the corners are curved exactly like that as well. So it is fully, it's basically like a giant individual cube on a Rubik's Cube, except all the sides are black. And Um uh, Mine's rather big like mine's like five to seven meters in each on each side um it's sitting in the center of the field on a point mm-hmm. and it's all sort of metallic and very shiny and you can't see inside it and it's just sort of sitting there it's kind of like a ufo like just sort of sitting there just you know, like maybe hovering a few feet off the ground. So I wrote 
my cube is average size. But now that I think about it, I don't know what an average cube would be. But the way yeah, I what think, is average size? I think the one I'm thinking of is like a, a packing container, like you know, like mm-hmm. what mm. you store when you when you're moving. That's the way I was thinking. It's an average cube. Um, yep. So my cube's pretty packing container esque. Uh, it's red. It's also plastic. Um, very smooth and very um, shiny kind of thing. Uh, and it's sort of sitting in the center of the field. And yeah, I think that's about it. That's all I wrote. Um, so the cube represents you. The size of the cube is your ego. So Philip, <laughs> you don't have any ego. I have what I like to call an average ego. Andrew Andrew's got a massive ego. Massive, massive, ego. massive like like ridiculous size. Yep. Um, the surface of the cube <laughs> represents what is visibly observant about your personality. So uh, nothing. Phil, what is this? <laughs> you and me were both very smooth. So yep. you are a gentle person who takes care not to hurt others and tries not to make them feel uncomfortable, which I feel like you and I do. <laughs> we're very like. Yes. We try and just make everyone feel comfortable, but then get annoyed <laughs> very easily. Yeah, just sit sitting in, in your own kind of world like, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, f- Drew, what was your texture again? Mine's smooth and shiny. Also, you're also a very gentle person who tries not to get other people annoyed. Um, the color of the cube is more in-depth analysis of yourself. Each color represents an emotion or an entire personality altogether. So mine was red, which is you enjoy rich sensory experiences. Um, yours was black, Phil, which is you have a strong sense of individuality, individuality and independence, and you put a high value on your alone time, which I get. Yeah, I like being alone. I like kind of being quiet and everything like that, funnily enough. Drew, what was <laughs> else was about yours? Mine's like metallic, so like gunmetal grey, like heading toward black. All right, so you have a metal cube. There is an actual answer for this. Indicates that you have a solid integrity. Your personality is so strong that it cannot be bent or influenced by an external force. Interesting. I like that answer. Right. I like that too. Oh. Interesting. Okay, now ladder. Ladder, folks. Yeah. Uh, how long is the ladder? Where is the ladder located in your field? What's the distance between the ladder and the cube? Phil. I had my ladder as a two-meter-tall ladder, but it was like one of those A ladders. Um, <laughs> an A-frame. <laughs> yeah, an A-frame ladder, and it's actually sitting over the, the table with the cube on it, so it's over the cube. Drew? Mine's like an old-fashioned wooden ladder, rich mahogany, I've written. Um, uh, as reference, I think Phil will understand this in the Santa Claus, the ladder that appears b- beside mm-hmm. the house. That was sort of what, what I thought of. Um, it's about, let's say, seven metres tall, and it's sitting propped up against the side of the cube. So mine is a wooden step ladder. And it's just like off to the side somewhere near a tree. I don't know why it's near a tree, but it's near a tree. (laughs) Um, So, but it's not, it's not, it's very practical. Like it's for practical use. So 
Um, the latter is it represents two different aspects of your life. They represent your goals and your friendship. So let's first look at what your ladder says about your goals. Um, short ladder. So I've got the short ladder. Your goals are realistic and simple. Um, also, uh, my ladder's pretty far off. You aren't putting much thought or effort into achieving your goals. I'd argue that I am. Um, so yeah, the first one I get, my goals are realistic and simple. The second one, you're not putting much thought or effort into your goals. I think I am, but probably not as much as, not practically, I don't think, sometimes. But anyway, Phil, yours is very tall. Your goals are... Two meters, it's not very tall. Oh yeah, it's tall. <laughs> Drew's Drew. ones are lofty, my ones are just, meh, normal. Well, <laughs> yours is kind of in between, so I'm not sure what that means, but... Drew, your goals are far-fetched and difficult to attain. And yeah. yours is very near. You're putting maximum, 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 yep. maximum, maximum effort and focus into achieving said goals. Apparently. Okay. And Phil, where's yours again? On top? Yep. You are Sitting also, over it. You are also putting maximum effort. I don't know. Wow. Mine's okay. far away. Um, okay. Hmm. And now the location and the material of your ladder can also tell how close you are with your friends. Uh, the closer the ladder is to the cube and the stronger the ladder is, the better your friendships is for you. Um, so. Well, mine's on top of it, so. Yeah. Near, if your ladder is near the cube, you're very close with your friends and it's actually leaning on the cube. It means you, your friends can lean on you for support. If it's a strong material, um, the stronger the material, the stronger the bond. Flimsy um, metal. I don't think. I don't know what that says. Rich mahogany. <laughs> uh, a weak ladder indicates a weak bond between you and those around you, uh, and a far one has means you have a hard time opening up to people and letting them get close to you. Which I can, I can think, I can do. Which I just realised I did not answer just because people are playing this at home. Um, quickly to go back to the cube. If you have mm. a rough cube, you're more straightforward and you tend to be honest. You have a bumpy or spiky cube. You tend have a tendency to criticize others in an attempt to make yourself feel better. In, in an attempt to make yourself to make others feel, to make them feel inferior to you. So you're trying to put other people down for some reason if your cube is spiky or bumpy. Um, yellow cube is your social and you cherish your individuality. Blue is you are intelligent and respect others' ideas. Violet is you are intelligent and a bit of a perfectionist. You are also mysterious. Gray <laughs> is you are self-confident, independent, and not easily rattled. And black, uh, black we've said. White is you are kind, independent, and self-reliant. Transparent surfaces mean you tend to let others know how you feel on the inside. You are a confident person and you show your inner thoughts. Um, and a hollow cube is that you primarily concerned with your outside appearance uh with far less care for what's going on within which is kind of sad uh yes yeah, yes i just thought i'd go back and go through those because i no, of course. realized we missed all of them nice um, to see none of us had transparent cubes or <laughs> yeah. hollow that's sad Ooh. Ooh. um sorry if you have a hollow cube at home um, <laughs> <laughs> um okay so the horse what colour yeah. is your horse? What is the horse doing? And where is the horse in relation to your cube? 
Uh, and my my horse was against the fence, so far away from the cube. Um, just standing up, swatting flies away, tied to the fence, um, swatting flies with its tail. It has a it's brown with a white mane. Um, and yeah. Mine's like a reddy brown, similar color to the ladder. Um, it's actually um, sort of nudging its head toward the ladder, and it's only a few meters away. It's like maybe two meters from the ladder, and then the ladder's right next to the cube. All right, so mine is also brown. It's kind of grazing, and it's kind of uh, close to the cube-ish. Like, it's not that far from the cube. Uh, so yep. if your horse is playing, for those of you at home, uh, your ideal part, this, the, the, the horse represents your ideal partner. It sh- could be playing, running around or grazing next to, right next to your cube or clear across the field. So if it's playing, your ideal partner doesn't take too life too seriously or get bogged down by their little stuff. If it's running around, your ideal partner will respect your space and give you all the time that you crave. Um, if it's sleeping or grazing or just hanging out nearby or hanging out, um, your ideal partner is calm and fully committed to you. Um, brown, your prize comfort and re- your prize comfort and reliability you, uh, you prize comfort and reliability above all else. Otherwise, you don't have a specific expectations from your partner. Black, your idea of a partner is dominant, seductive, and sophisticated. And white, <laughs> you value loyalty and trust more than anything else in a relationship so mm-hmm. i think we all had brown horse and mm-hmm. grazing kind of staying still and mm. phil's had a white mane is that right yeah yeah, yeah that's interesting. that makes a lot of sense yeah. yeah um what was white again you value loyalty and trust more than anything else yeah yeah yep. it's yeah. pretty good um also, one more factor to consider is about the distance from your horse. If it's very near to the cube, uh, from your cube, sorry. Yeah. If it's very near to the cube, it indicates that you prefer relationships where you spend most of your time with your partner. If it's, if the horse is a bit further away from the cube, it indicates you need a partner who will understand and accommodate for your desire to be alone, like just for a long time. Mine wasn't too far, but it wasn't really close either. Mine's really far, but I don't feel like that's the case in reality. Hmm. I feel like I'm forced into having a long time because <laughs> it's, it's you know it's the literal circumstance yeah. right now, but that's the circumstance though. Yeah, maybe that's just because of the circumstance that you're currently in. Yeah. All yeah, right, maybe let's speed through the rest of this. Flowers. Where are the flowers? How many are there? Uh, okay, I've said that um, it's sunflowers in a vase. There's a bunch of them. I don't know how many specific, but like a bouquet of flowers, I guess. Um, and it's on the little table next to the cube. That's really funny because I had like roses on a bouquet next to the cube. Okay. So mine's like just the odd flower or two scattered across the field. Um, you know, like when you just see a random flower just pop up. That's it. Okay, so if you have just a few flowers, you are close with your family and have a small, tight-knit group of friends, which I think for me is right. Um, If they are everywhere, you're a social butterfly with family and friends too numerous to count and you will never be lonely. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, What was the other question for that part? Uh, The kind of um, the weather. The weather. Okay. No, no. Sorry, I was thinking there was more for the flowers. Um, weather. What is the weather in the field currently? 
Perfect day. Perfect. A little day. bit of cloud, but a little bit of blue. A perfect amount of blue. Turn little wispy white clouds. Drew, I like that. Mine's an autumn day. It's nice and cold. Scattered clouds and the sun's out. All right. Well, mine is sort of um, the winter thing still because it was winter with the grass. So it is sunny, but it's also cold. But I like cold. Yep. So, um, yep. The weather in the field reflects your general outlook on life. There's a reason we have the expression when it rains, it pours. Uh, so if there's rain, it symbolizes there's problems in your life. Life, the harder the rain, the bigger the problems. If it's fog, you feel uncertainty in your life and you may be struggling with your identity. If there's wind, though you tend to worry about future issues, you generally don't let them get you down for too long. And if it's sun, hmm. you're pretty carefree at the moment. You you know, you're pretty optimistic and cheerful at the moment. There's nothing too much bogging you down in the grand scheme of things. Um I like that. And the storm, finally. Uh, what is the distance from, so thinking of the storm approaching or coming or whatever, the storm that's about to take over the forest, or the forest, mm-hmm. the field, what is the distance between uh, the storm and the cube? Is the storm big and is it just passing through? I've said that the storm is um, on the horizon still. Um, in fact, it's causing some breeze heading well, it's some breeze because of it. Every now and then, little, little, you know, wisps of wind that come through um, because of it. Uh, you can feel kind of the heaviness of it. It's dark um, and overbearing on the other side, and you can hear some lightning um, sounds, some thunder rumbling through because of it. Um, but on the horizon, so it's still a while away. Um, it's a perfectly wonderful day where we are, but you can definitely see that that part of the sky is big, and it's kind of that's the way it's going to set in. For a, for a while, that's it's going to be that instead. Drew, so mine's sort of like a, like a medium level storm. It's sitting over the mountains that are you know at the far reaches of where this field is. It's like it's threatening to come over, but it's never actually coming anywhere near the field or the cube or any of that. So mine's pretty much the same. It's not quite in the field yet. It's just approaching on the horizon, and it looks pretty fantastic to be honest yep but um it's it up uh, you know when you feel the storm approaching but it's not there yet and you're just kind of cold and you're like that anticipation yeah yeah mm. that that's the way it is like i can feel the electricity in the air um so the strength and position of the storm reflect the stretch stress which you are feeling in your life right now as you'll probably guess the stronger the storm and the closer to uh and the closer to the cube the higher the stress level if you imagine a storm raging right above your cube, it might be a good idea to work on reducing your stress in life. So mild storms, while you aren't immune to stress, you know that things are things must pass. So I don't think any of us had mild storms. No. Did we? no. So strong storms, where you stress, you go all in and you have a hard time pulling yourself out again. We all had strong storms <laughs> approaching. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but... But here's the good thing. In the background, any obstacle that might be causing you grief um, you, is not at the forefront of the, your mind. You are good at managing your stress and anxiety. Um, and okay. if it's right above the cube, you are deeply affected by stress and anxiety and you have a hard time seeing past it to get back to the bigger picture. So <laughs> that's it. I see. That's the personality okay. test. How did we go? How did you guys think that went? I really liked that. 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm trying to. I was trying to piece together the the ways in which things were. Um, why some things meant that what they meant as in i wasn't questioning it i was trying to work out how the link and i could kind of see the link and, and understand the yeah I, I get the um the relevance of that and how that that kind of connection can work it's just interesting to look at it and and be able to see what what um visual representation you had to think of how that what that would represent in your mind and it's just interesting to see it um yeah cool very interesting very interesting because i wasn't yeah. expecting that no, I get the letter too. I, That's, I in the fact, letter. the letter's the I one that I the letter's the one that I got the reference of, or like I could see the link between. Um, to me, it's kind of the key to be able to see the science behind it in I, some ways. I think the letter threw me because what I expected the answer to be for what it meant wasn't the answer that it was. But I'm sure that if I think back to it later, I'm kind of can piece it together. Like I probably like I get the positioning of the ladder. Like for example, leaning against, or is it over? Is it away from, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, I, I, mm. yeah. I, it good. Very interesting, though. Very interesting. I love doing these tests. Well, I like I, how it personified a lot of things. Mm. I I do like these tests for that reason. That it kind of just even even if they're not necessarily correct, it makes you think about it. Like, am I like that? Yes. Like, who? What is? What is this part mm. of me? And, uh, yeah, I think that's why I do enjoy doing them. And if you guys do enjoy doing them at home, give us a shout-out. Um, we can do more. I do actually have a backup one for later, which we can, you know, maybe do. We'll have to do it. In, yeah. yeah. We'll have to Absolutely. do it again soon. But for now. Absolutely. How about we go to a break? Sick and tired of people stealing your drinks? Time to prank and protect with the new Puck-Up. Puck up is the upside down cup that pretends it's an empty cup when really it's protecting your precious nectar. Simply press the button under your puck up to release the patented base lid and fill or drink. You'll never find anyone stealing your sips again. Puck up, available now from all good retailers. Alrighty. Now, uh, anyone who listens to us, um, whether it's on the show or in person, knows that we love our movies. I mean, not me, but Drew. Yeah, absolutely me. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, and uh, every three years, we do get very excited um, for a new installment in the James Bond film series. Okay, so this one, actually, I am a part of this one my family has loved as long as i can remember and we kind of watch these so these movies i have watched yeah so my family's the same i i i remember as a kid used to sit up late with mum watching them on the tv right it's just a part of the childhood that was like growing up we had the whole dvd case so we'd just pick a dvd and watch it yeah and we eventually got to that stage we had the box set and you know like these days it's one of those things where my whole family will always go and see it together at the cinema whenever there's a new one out. Well, well on, on that, I hope that, um, you know, should we come out of the lockdown soon enough, you'll be able to do that for the next one and keep the tradition going. Because, of course, we do have a new one coming, don't we? In, indeed we do. Um, in a couple of months' time, um, we'll be seeing the 25th Bond film um, entitled... No Time to Die, um, and of course this will be the last Bond film to feature Daniel Craig. Um, it's actually his fifth turn in that role. Man, I can still remember the day I went to see him in Casino Royale. 
Thursday, 7th of December, 2006 was opening day here in Australia. We got it three weeks after the UK release, but I was so excited like going off to the cinema I, that night to see it. Well, I remember I didn't go on the, the opening night, but I did go and see it. And uh, yeah, it, it is crazy to think that it's been about 15 years since then. Mm. Um, I, that, that just blows my mind. Um, I also remember seeing it with crazy. my mum, my brother, my dad, and my cousins. They are my nine parents of me and my brother and my cousins to say it. Wow. And um, I remember the scene where he gets whacked in the balls and just <laughs> how we lost yeah. our shit at that. Um, I don't know why, but we did. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, it's, I think it's because there's been so much of a time gap between the films that it's made it seem like it's gone like a lot less time has gone by because there's only five films, 15 years. Like it's almost, a, what is it? Yeah. One, one film every three years. Why did that maths take me so long? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, th- I think you're, you're right with that. Yeah. I'm trying to think if the timing is right. Yeah. I, I, but I think you're right. Like I think, I think um, what we've decided to do though in, in, in anticipation um, is we thought we'd go for a little bit of a dive into the Bond films, um, and um, and so that's something that we're going to do. So um, what we thought we'd do before we do that even, so before we dump, jump into that, we'll jump into this, and this is a brief history of James Bond. Right, so it all starts with the books. The books were created by, written by Ian Fleming. There were a total of 12 novels and two short story collections that were published between 1953 and 1966. That's right. With the last two books, The Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy and the Living Daylights, that were both published posthumously. All the books were written at Fleming's Goldeneye Estate in Jamaica during the months of January and February each year. Yes. Now, um, Ian Fleming created the fictional character of James Bond. Um, as the central figure in um, his works. Uh, Now, Bond is an intelligence officer in the Secret Intelligence Service, commonly known as MI6. Um, Bond is known by his code number, 007, and was a Royal Naval Reserve commander. Um, Fleming based his... uh, his his, I don't know, his creation, his fictional creation, I guess, um, on a number of individuals he came across during his time in the Naval Intelligence Division um, and 30 Assault Unit um, during the Second World War. Um, he admitted that Bond, uh, what did he say here, was a compound of all the secret agents and commando types I met during the war. The name James Bond came from that of an American orphanologist, James Bond, a Caribbean bird ex- expert, and author of the definitive field guide, Birds of the West Indies. Fleming, a keen birdwatcher himself, had a copy of Bond's guide, and he later explained to the ornithologist's wife, I can't say that word, <laughs> ornithologist. ornithologist's wife, that it struck me that this brief, unromantic Anglo-Saxon and yet very masculine name was just what I needed. And so a second James, so, and so a second later, a James, and so a second James Bond was born. Oh, I understand that quote now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On another occasion, Fleming had also said, I wanted the simplest, dullest, plainest sounding name I could find. James Bond was much better than something more interesting like Peregrine Carathers 
Exotic things would happen to and go around him, but he would be a neutral figure, an anonymous blunt instrument wielded by the government department. Yes. Now, Fleming endowed Bond with many of his own traits, including sharing the same golf handicap, the taste for scrambled eggs, and using the same brand of toiletries. Bond's tastes are also often taken from Fleming's own, as was his behaviour, with Bond's love of golf and gambling mirroring Fleming's own. Fleming used his experiences of his espionage career and all other aspects of his life as inspiration when writing, including using names of school friends, acquaintances, relatives, and even lovers throughout his books. He had a lover named Pussy Galore, I'm sure. I was going to say that. There is, a, <laughs> there is a story behind the influence behind that character. We'll certainly get to that one with our... Um, uh, when we review that that um, that film, Goldfinger, um, yes. now of course nine years on from the publication of the first book, we got the first film, and so began a film series that has now run for fifty nine years. Yeah, that's insane. But look, for the next few weeks, we'll be reviewing the films in their release order. And uh, on that note, boys, shall we head to a quote? Yes, I think we certainly should, uh, should, should, and then we'll be back with um, Dr. No and from Russia with love to kick off the series. And now it's time for what the quote. Uh, Philip, I do believe you have last week's quote. Yes, I do. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? And of course, that fantastic quote is from the great Joni Mitchell with her seminal classic, Big Yellow Taxi. Such a good song. Mm. Um, yeah. Drew, I think you have this week's quote. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? Now, of course, if you know what that quote is from, reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or anything else, and uh, let us know if you know what it is. All right. Now, as we were just discussing, a little bit of James Bond. Well... We've taken it upon ourselves to go ahead and rewatch, or I suppose in, um, at the very least, Bianca's case, if not Phil's as well, watching some of these films for the very first time. So, how are we feeling about this, guys? There's a lot. Um, there is a lot, because <laughs> I, I, I legitimately haven't watched these since I was probably about 11 or 12. And I was mostly paying attention back then for the action scenes and I didn't really care about much else. Yep. And I also used to watch, I realized I also used to watch a lot more like 60s films when I was that age. Like I used to watch a lot of Elvis Presley films um, and I would watch like old Turkish films a lot when I was a kid. So I was kind of more used to the old film format. Yep. But I haven't watched that for a very long time. So this kind of threw me back and it kind of made me realize. I mean, I don't enjoy it as I don't think it made me realize anything. I just I just realized I, now I don't enjoy it as much as I did as a kid. It kind of one, one thing frustrates though, me. Drew, one thing, though, Drew, yes. that Bianca and I spoke about off air um, about this is that this is going to be a really, really good kind of um cross-section of the evolution of film in the sense that we're, we're comparing um, 
spy film to spy film. We're not comparing comedy to action to drama to whatever. It's the same genre of film. Um, yeah. We're comparing something that's basically year on year all the way to the present day, essentially. Um, mm. So it, we're going to get a really good cross-section uh, of the evolution of film. And that's something that, that I'm, I, I didn't think about. I'm genuinely excited to do that. But as we said, this is the first time I'm watching these ones. I've never watched these ones. And in fact, I've only watched maybe half of one of the um, Roger Moore films. Yeah, like we were talking about it the other night where I just think this this collection of movies, just the way that we're doing this now, it you can completely see how modern day action movies has have evolved from this kind of typical spy mm. uh what's the word i'm looking for like format kind of thing like all the tropes well, the you formula. can see in here yeah the, the formula yeah the formula basically and um yeah yeah I, I it is interesting so bring it on i'm I, I'm very excited because the last time I watched all of them, I would, would have been 15 years ago when Casino Royale came out. I I took on the very stupid task of watching all 21 films in seven days, and that was three a day. And it's very hard to digest it when you do it like that. So, um, what we've been doing here at home in our lockdown paradise is watching one a night with dinner and. It's been quite interesting to have that time to um, look over it and see this evolution in in more detail. Mm. So, what what better way to kick this off than to start off with the first two films? Now, what you'll find, dear listeners, is that for the next, let's say, about 12 weeks, that averages out, right? We will be doing two films per week. So, starting off today, we have the first Bond film, Dr. No. Now, I have the synopsis right here. A resourceful British government agent seeks answers in a case involving the disappearance of a colleague and the disruption of the American space program. So, yes. Is that what happened? Look, the reason. Okay, so so straight off the bat, um, let's get into some discussion here, and and Hold I'm going to say Yanka yeah. possibly has ADD, so watching these films were difficult. Yes, <laughs> was just like what is happening. Well, well, then uh, yeah, let, let's get to some discussion. So with this one here, um, criticism for it. Um, no, sorry. Let's start off with a pro. The pro being this is the first in what has ended up being probably one of the most successful, forceful um, film pr- franchises of all time. To the con. This first film, um, I can't comment on how powerful it was or how absolutely um, groundbreaking it was because I wasn't there when it came out. Um, what I will say, though, is that this film is basically just a homicide um, case with Bond being a glorified police officer, basically, on a hom- or a detective on a homicide case. And then they just sprinkle, occasionally, um, American space program into it. And then there's Dr. No, um, who definitely has no reason at all for having such a complex base on an island in Jamaica. I, I, I really don't get the logic of that at all. That basically, he could probably get away with just having, I don't know, 
a house, but he has this really extravagant <laughs> thing for no reason. And um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I it just it just all seemed a bit far fetched to me and didn't really make any sense. My brain was mostly consumed with the fact that I never realized that Miss Tarot and Doctor No were supposed to be Asian. Because they're clearly not Asian. I just thought they were just kind of those people who dressed up in oh, a lot of Asian I, clothing. Bianca, I've um, already forgotten that that was the case. I've already <laughs> forgotten that you literally told me that a day ago that that was the case. Uh, of course, I, I keep forgetting that. It's not even what I, f- I, I don't factor it in. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I didn't realize what the fuck was going on until I was watching it this time. And I'm like, hold on. He's talking about how he grew up in China in Hong or Hong Kong or something, and I'm like, "What the fuck? You're white." <laughs> mm. And yeah, True. no, I, yeah. Um, look, I'm I'm pretty soft toward all the old Bond films mm. because I grew up watching them with Mum, and Doctor No has always been one that's been pretty vivid for me. I I got the box set of them when I was fourteen, and of course, you know, if you're going to watch them, you're going to start from the beginning. So I watched it a fair bit. Um, I'm also aware of a lot of the behind the scenes. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, sympathetic to the fact that they they had no budget. They were not given any money. They had to improvise a lot of what they did to achieve it. So to bring it from um, from book to screen, I thought was quite quite an achievement in itself. Because the book is a lot more complex than the film. But at the same time, I, I think there's obviously a lot of elements lacking, but also you know, this is teething issues for the first in a series. Can I also I, mention how you're talking about pr- the, the, you know, they had no money. Yeah. It's very obvious that they had no money in this film in regards to sound design. The sound oh, yeah. design in this film is god awful. Oh, um, I, I didn't even notice until Phil Pope pointed it out to me because I was too enwrapped with the fact that the car chase scene was just like weird. Oh, um, but the, the tire screeching this, on the yeah, dirt Yeah, the tires road. are screeching on dirt. It's like... I I will give no. credit to them, though, for one thing that they do, they do achieve in that car chase, and that is that they cut between real footage and him sitting in the car in front of the green screen <laughs> in such a way like back then was, it, obviously it, it it's glaringly obvious green to us now but or is it one of those painted screens back then they used to use a lot of painted screens that they used to it would it would have sorry yes yeah it you're right a green screen. It, it would have been well it, actually it would have been a rear projected screen so yeah that one um sorry yeah they, they would have rear projected the footage and then had the car moving and having him move his hands on well, the wheel. One, on, now, on that, that actual chase though, Drew, I, what I absolutely loved about it was that the footage that you could then see behind him was yeah. so blown up that the car behind him was about five times bigger than he was or his car was. It's it's just <laughs> yeah. laughable. Brilliant. That's what Blo- was blown up. me. I was watching Bl- the scene and I was like, why is this wrong? And I couldn't figure it out. But now that you've said it, that's what was throwing me The car me was the enormous behind him. It was like it could have driven over him. <laughs> it was like a giant. Oh, it's blown up about as well as those goldfish in uh, Dr. No's lair. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, we have a lot better effects now. And you can see this just like watching any movie from the 2000s, early 2000s, where I used to think the the special effects and the CGI was amazing. 
Mm. And now watching it and you realize how shit it is compared to CGI you have now. You know, that that's I can understand that because back then it would have looked perfectly real. They didn't have HD TVs. They didn't have, you know, um, they, you know, you were lucky if you had a projector back then. Like it was fine for the time. Um, we you know, might be berating it a bit too harshly, but that was funny. I just... You say that, but, and yeah, the effects the effects don't come up nicely. But my goodness, some of that scenery, and you know, we're watching it on a seventy five inch um, HD TV here. It, like it's showing everything. So yeah, the effects don't look great, but some of the scenery and some of that camera work, it looks magnificent. There, there are things to like there. There are a lot of things that you can see just aren't quite up to snuff yet. Um, I suppose maybe just a couple of interesting little tidbits about the film. Uh, the producers originally sought Cary Grant for the role of Bond. However, they discarded that idea pretty quickly as Grant would only commit to doing one movie. And they wanted to have someone that would be taking part of a series. Yep. That's interesting. Um, I think Cary Grant would have brought something very different and interesting to it. I think so too. Um, I, I feel like we possibly would have seen something more akin to his performance in North by Northwest. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad that it wasn't him. Uh, now, this one's for you, Phil. Mm-hmm. Formula One driver Sebastian Vettel, who has a tradition of assigning his car's female names, yes, designated his Aston Martin AMR21 chassis after Honey Rider, <laughs> our well lead done. female protagonist, and also the first Bond girl. Was she, yes. though? Because, you know, I know she is officially known as the first Bond girl, but there was two other b- girls in this movie, Miss Tarot and... What's the other lady's name? I can't remember, but the woman she's with, he's with in the beginning. I, I find it interesting Just that Honey Rider was, was considered the first Bond girl. But in saying that, one thing that I find very interesting about um, Ursula Andress, I don't think I'm pronouncing her surname yes. yet, right? Yes. Um, she, her voice is not in that film. It's just her body. <laughs> Oh. Um, her her spoken dialogue was dubbed by Nikki Van Dezil, and her singing mm-hmm. voice was Diana Copland. I mm-hmm. didn't know that. Yeah, she. Yeah. That's not her voice. Drew, your scores. I'd love to Phillip. hear your scores. All right. So my scores are. Look, um, a lot of this is appreciative of of you know all the factors. So on a technical level I, I give it a 7 out of 10 because with what they had and with what they were achieving and you know in many ways it is trailblazing. I yeah, 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Personal enjoyment. I've loved that movie since I was a kid, so and even now I still enjoy watching it from that opening sequence with the three blind mice right to the very end. So I give that a 7 out of 10 as well. Doesn't it doesn't wow me, but I still enjoy it. I, I still consider it solid viewing. Um, I w- over to you, Philip. Yeah, look, I would give it. I'll I'll mirror your score on the technical front because this is the first one. So the first one I can't really comment because I don't know how groundbreaking it is. So I'll take your word for it and give it a seven then. Um, mm-hmm. For what it did, again, I thought the story was kind quite basic though. It was basically just a homicide story, but anyway. With some world beating yep. in it, uh, thrown at the end there. Yep. Um, personally, I'll give it a, 
I'll give it a five because of the fact that it was mm. the first one and what it represents and everything like that. Um, it was okay. Um, not brilliant. Um, Jesus Christ, watching the gratuitous sex, but not the sex, but the, the um, chauvinistic piggishness and the man that hasn't aged well and God, it gets worse. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll give it a five. Bianca? Bianca? Um, I think for the tech, I'll probably give it a seven along with you guys because for the time, it was interesting and they, I, I mean, they hadn't developed. I mean, I give it a lot of crap for its audio visual because there is a lot of Honey mm. Riders out of sync as well if you watch really closely. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's at one point when they're on the beach, you can see um, one of the sound guys sitting the spi- down in the front spider of scene Bianca as well Rider. when the spiders when the spider's crawling on him um the one of the mm. stage hands blocks the sun the, the light on him and you can see the person's shadow um <laughs> and also the um yeah the gravel road anti squealing just absolutely kills me uh yep. you can also see um there's another part where oh that's right when James Bond and Honey Rider go and have a shower in the waterfall Mm-hmm. And then they step mm-hmm. away and they're perfectly dry. It's just like yep. absolutely funny. <laughs> um, <but> anyway, <laughs> that, like for that kind of, I give him a seven. But I, I think personal enjoyment, I think because mostly I was just, this time I was questioning everything. I think I would probably give it around a four or five too. Yeah, five. I'll give it a nine. A, a generous five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. A generous okay. five for me as well. Can we also talk about, and this is going to be more with from Lush, Russia with Love, which is what I can comment on because of the fact that I understood the Turkish kind of in this film, mm-hmm. the racism yes. in these films. The, oh, there's, uh, not, there's, not, there's just not no, to only um, talk about. Yeah, not to yeah. only talk about the fact that you know the two Chinese characters in this film were played by white people in um, Doctor No, but it's it, blatant ignorance. Yeah, it. It's it's ridiculous in ignorance. So let, let's talk about quickly Russia with love. Uh, Drew synopsis. James Bond willingly falls into an assassination plot involving a naive Russian beauty in order to retrieve a Soviet encryption device that was stolen by Spectre. Okay, so both of these movies were directed by Terence Young and the screenplays yep. were both by Richard Mabin, but in the first screenplay, Johanna Harwood and Berkeley Mathura assisted. But... With this film in particular, so this film is mostly set in Istanbul, and mm-hmm. I have the benefit of I speak another language, I speak Turkish, so I'm listening to all the Turkish like stuff being said back and forth in this film, and you know the stuff that's just like generally in the background, like that's just like noise of people talking in the markets and stuff. That was fairly understandable. That 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 was that was probably a lot of Turkish people just you know told have a discussion about something. And I think one of the discussions that was had, I was trying to translate as I was going. I wrote them down, but one of them was about um, you know just buying and selling in the market, and then another one was about uh, oh, what was the other one? Oh, something about the price of um, carpets or the you know. Oh, saying the carpet was gorgeous. That's right. Um, that was fine, the background stuff. But when it came to main characters speaking Turkish, let's point out the fact that the actor who plays um, Ali Karim, who is the Turkish uh, 
guide James Bond's, uh, you know, a friend in this movie mm-hmm. is played by a Mexican man named Pedro Armendariz. Yeah, foreign. And what do you mean? Foreign. I, I genuinely feel like someone in the casting director was like, pick someone with an accent. And I was watching it at the beginning and I'm like, that is not a Turkish accent. That is definitely a South American accent. And it was. <laughs> and his Turkish is okay, but it's abysmal at the same time. But it's, it's better than <laughs> Sean Connery's, who well, at one point says thank you, which is Teşekkür. And he says, uh, teşe, he says Teşekkür. Durum, which kind of vaguely sounds like if you translate it into Turkish, um, the round test, because <laughs> Durum means um, like wrap or wrap the test, kind of wrap the test around, and it makes no sense. And I was just like, my granddad sat there and watched me. My granddad also speaks um, Romani, which they speak in this movie, um, and my granddad like understood two words, and one of them was fight, I- and that was about it. I um I was a little bit harder on this film than the first one because obviously it's a sequel. It's the second one. It's now part of a, a franchise. Um, oh. I said that the the dialogue in this film was probably worse. It was all over the place. There wasn't really any consistency to it. And it was all just over the place. Someone would say something, then be a bit of a pause, and then it it very much felt like they were reading off of a script in this one. Um, I said um that uh. What I say, I said that the basically Bond in this, it feels like James Bond is, pl- it, it feels like <laughs> Bond is what the Brits think the world thinks of them, as in they're desirable and incredible, but what they don't realize they're doing is they're playing the Brits as in how the world really sees them, which is an absolute fool and not very good at anything and a bit clumsy and pathetic. Um, but they still think, you know, like the, the, the women who absolutely like fall over for Bond and everything like that. That's how the Brits think the world views them. And also the way that like, oh, the poor Turks and everything like that need James Bond to help them because they're so pathetic and, you know, helpless and everything. Oh, thank God Bond's here to solve all the problems. It's like, well, no, that's not how it really is viewed. Um, and then I also said no one can act, um... And, yeah, old mate doesn't care that his dad's dead because um, at one point someone dies and then he's like, oh, your dad's dead. And they're like, oh, okay, what do you want me to do? And then they just do the next thing. Um, I also put that they're doing the old let me in on your whole plan whilst I needlessly prolong killing you bit. Um, and uh, then I also, this is the last little bit that I had for my notes on From Russia With Love. Um in England, we have a saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I said, um, in Australia, we have a saying, what the fuck's that got to do with anything? And that's it. That's what I had for From Russia With Love. Drew, <laughs> your thoughts on From Russia With Love, your favorite in the series? It is my favorite Bond film. And Why? I... <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, <laughs> look, I... I, I give you a lot of reasons why I, why I like it. I can't I can't pin down why it's my favorite, except to say that I think this is the one where um, all the key elements that make up Bond. This is where 
you first really see it come to light. So this is our first proper introduction to Q and we get a really good sense of the gadgets. This is where the pre-title sequence is introduced. Um, the concept of Blofeld as the character that we're leading to the first, um, helicopter sequence like the this is the one with all the elements that that start to showcase what the bond films will become and i like the tension in this film i like that it's this this very espionage driven um tension building cold war thriller that's also playing as a two-hander wherein bond is not the only agent that the the bond girl of this film um tatiana romanova is also an agent that it it's not just him with a damsel it's him with a perfectly capable agent as well no she was pathetic she was a damsel she just at every second she just wanted to say i love you i love you i'm in love with you i can't do anything for myself i'm pathetic yeah i have to agree drew like i I get that you you you're like she's an agent too, but she's not portrayed as an agent. Um, no, and I'm pathetic. I, I, and this is also you have to remember the beginning, like it, in the era, it's 1961 or something. 1960. I don't know. Um, it is 63. 63. Okay, I, so in 1963, that's the beginning of the feminist revolution. The f- there was a lot of at the time films where the women started becoming less damselly and more independent. Um, it was rare, but Bond's going the, the other way. These films that women yeah. are getting worse and more pathetic. A- and he slaps her around a bit, and I don't know. I I I probably as a kid i didn't even realize she was an agent that did actually occur to me while i was watching it this time i was like i didn't even know she was an agent too i just thought she was a spy or something like she was being used because she could do something that other people couldn't that was pretty much all i ever thought but um yeah she was kind of whiny i I think i think um tatiana is one of my least favorite bond girls i have a question actually i do just just a really quick question The the Bond girl in the first one, the the girl that's with him for some reason on the island, what the fuck? Who the fuck was she? Was she just someone looking for shells? <sighs> Honey Rider. Yeah, was she literally just I... looking for shells? Yeah, she... yeah. She goes there to find shells and then sells them in oh, Miami. It was just the but most, then it and then the fact so that they happens. were they were just uh, like it's just really pathetic. It just so of... happens that Honey Rider's father was also killed by Doctor No. Hmm. But yeah, she still but goes then, to but Dr. then there Nose was no, Island. there was no reason for her to go into the whole base. Now, like, it, it just nothing made sense. Anyway, um, but Russia the, the love, thing Drew, is, is, your scores, please. So technical, I give it eight out of ten because I do think it steps it up a little bit. Also, I love the train sequence and how that is executed. And I know a lot of movies around that time did train sequences. But I felt that this one was quite good, and I think it holds up quite well until um, until Mission Impossible came along in '96. Uh, personal score again, I I really enjoy this movie, so nine out of ten for me. I I understand that you two 
do not share in this, but it still just entertains me a lot. Um, okay, so I'll give it a... I'll give it a seven for technical. And again, I'm doing this not as a film from now. So this is a from the time. If it, if it was if it's a film from now, it'll get a one. If it's a from then film, it gets a seven. Because to your point, Drew, it does. Um, it introduces the starts of. It starts to flesh out the whole idea of Bond being part of um, this organization and what he's up against so he starts to flesh it out i also appreciate the the idea that it's kind of like a double cross the whole movie like it's an interesting mm. this the story of what he's doing I there th- is clever um i think it's the first time connery's comfortable in the role yeah he seems to be like, be settling into it a little bit more um but then personally yeah. it's got to get a four from me the reason it gets a worse score is because it's now and i put it in my notes as well it's almost getting unbearable the the essentially the raping that's going on the constant raping because there is a lot of really inappropriate sexual harassment going on a lot of times um women not wanting to kiss him and him just dragging them in and pulling them in for a kiss and stuff like it's just getting really at one point i had to pause the film because i was just getting a little bit uncomfortable with it all and i just got really tired of it yep um yep but and again i find that the leading the, the leading lady the bond girl quite pointless and really bad job as a spy um but again i thought that it gets some marks because i thought that the plot was interesting that there was a double cross involved um i appreciated that um for me technically i'm gonna give this one a six because it is the second one and i have watched other movies from the 60s and all that where I, I, this is again sound design for me the, the sound design in this one was where i really noticed it because there's so mm. many scenes where there's absolutely nothing playing and it's not for any heightened reason. It's not for any good reason. It's just because mm. I just don't feel like they knew what they were doing for some scenes. And it just means some scenes felt like nothing was happening. And I feel like there was a lot of scenes in this one where I just felt like nothing was happening. So probably give it a six. Um, and then mm. overall, I'd probably, yeah, agree. Four out of 10. I didn't, I don't really enjoy from russia with love and yeah again to explain how as terrible as this sounds just because i could understand what they were saying it sounded like to me someone was saying the entire thing in a bad accent like and and backwards i can't imagine watching an entire movie where people are just speaking Mm. backwards that's what all the Turkish sounded like to me, and it was so aggravating that it just was like, I can't do this. It it sounds stupid. Um, and on another note about the women of Bond, in the books, Honey Rider and Tatiana are very different to their film counterparts. Um, yeah, they're actually um... a lot more independent and a lot more, mm-hmm. um, a lot less damselly. They are damsels, don't get me wrong, but they're less damselly than they are in this series. And that's just I feel like that Ian Fleming wrote differently to what it was portrayed on the screen, but yeah. I feel like that plays into my um my rating of this one as well because I've I've read that book quite a few times of this film and I quite like 
the book. So I think for me, the line blurs a little bit between the two. That could also be why I'm a little softer toward it. But on this, on the same note, Sean Connery, um, Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli, the two producers, Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig have all named it as their favorite Bond film as well. That's interesting. I don't, I don't see why. Anyway, I'm glad that they don't make films like that then, <laughs> for, for my sake um, and society's sake. Um, do join us every week, though, as we do um, roll through the years and uh, tick through the Bond films. Um, but, of course, we now need to move on um, because... That sound can mean only one thing. It is now time for our Sitkent of the Week. Bianca, you can um, run with this one for me. This is a very sad one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and me. Sean, well, and you, yeah. Phil. Um, Sean Locke uh, is one of my favorite comedians. I love his dry and deadpan sense of humor, and he never failed to crack me up on 8 out of 10 cats or 8 out of 10 cats did, does countdown. Or QI, um, or just in general. Or QI, or January in general. I love him. Uh, him and Bill Bailey do some skits together. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I think I first heard of him, when he used to work with Bill ba- Bailey a lot back in the noughties. And then he showed up on 8 Out of 10 Cats. I'm like, oh, yay, fun. Um, but he had skin cancer when he was younger, after he was years, working as a laborer for many years. And he beat it. Um, but unfortunately late in life, five years ago, he developed lung cancer and sadly he lost his battle on the 16th of August. Um, he is a hilarious guy, but I can't write his obituary because truth be told, Mr. Locke wrote his own. What would you like your obituary to say? I don't care. I'll be dead. (laughs) But ideally I'd like it just to say... No! Why? No! Ah! You can't write tears, Jimmy. And indeed, Mr. Sean Locke, you can't write tears. Uh, so, Vale, Sean Locke, and he is our sick Kent of the Week. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, yep. completely agree. Yeah, Val Sean Locke and um yeah, Godspeed. What a what a what a loss though. He is such a brilliant was such a brilliant comedian. Um mm. I will have to go and binge watch a lot of eight out of ten cats does countdown. Um and, SBS and just... have a new tab just for Sean Locke. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh bring it on, bring it on. Um yeah. but otherwise, Drew, thank you. Um, thank you for bringing um, the additional info for the Bond um, segment as well. And Bianca, thank you very much. And uh, audience, thank you. Till next week. Yep. Yep.